So today we're, as I said, in the first week of Advent, and uh, we're starting our new series, the Advent Playlist, Songs for the Coming of Christ. And for the last year, we've been in the book of Matthew, which uh, you'll see a lot of tie-in to this psalm. Uh, On the Advent Playlist, we'll be going through the psalms this month, and today's psalm will be Psalm 118. And Advent comes from the, the Latin word Adventus, and it's, translate, it's translated from the Greek word perusia, uh, which you may have heard before. It's a word that it means coming, and it, we talk about it as the, uh, the first advent, Christ's birth, as well as the second advent, Christ's return. The advent candle reminds us in the four weeks leading up to the coming of Christ that we're looking forward to hope and, and joy and faith and and, uh, and I forgot the fourth one, but in a regular preaching schedule, we'll be talking about hope today, which is so important. So in our regular preaching schedule, as I mentioned, we're, we're looking through the book of Matthew, and we're, we're coming up to, at this point, leading up to his death. Jesus' death is, is looming large on the horizon, and he's facing more and more opposition from the religious leaders. Religious leaders are are continuing to grow emboldened in their hatred for Jesus as Jesus continues to bring bring crowds to them. They're frustrated not only because Jesus makes claims to be God, but mostly because he accuses them of being ungodly. What's even worse is that as Jesus calls them in on the carpet, The crowds continue to grow and come to see him. The people flock to him to hear him, to see him, to see him perform miracles, miracles which Christ explains are evidence that he is the Messiah. He is Christos, the Christ. And this is God's plan to save the world. This is plan A. Now as we work through our Advent playlist, My hope is that you will see scripture in a way that just reveals the hope that we have of this season as we look forward to the birth of Christ. This week, as I mentioned, we'll be looking at Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is especially appropriate. It's a Thanksgiving psalm. What could be more appropriate with memories of turkey and mashed potatoes still heavily imprinted on our minds and in our Tupperware filling our fridges, constant searches of Pinterest, looking for a thousand ways to make turkey interesting and delicious in new ways that we've never seen or heard before. And this is all a reminder of the Thanksgiving holiday that we had just had, and this is an exclusively American holiday for us. Thanksgiving, though, is not strictly for Americans. And we'll see in Psalm 18 that what we have here is a psalm of thanksgiving, a song of thankfulness. And as we work through the psalm, just keep in mind these three points. One, that God's love is eternal. Two, that God's help is unfathomable. And three, that God's son is unconquerable. So let's open up our God's word together. Look to Psalm 118, I'll read it, and then we will unpack it together. Psalm 118 reads, 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side, is my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and it's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Advent season and this reminder of week one, hope. We thank you for the greatest hope the world has ever known. We pray that you would open our eyes to see this and your ears to hear it. Make us teachable, Lord. In your son's name I pray this, amen. And as I said, Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving. The most likely author is David and it mirrors David's style closely, and we look at passages amongst the other prophet, amongst prophets like Ezra in chapter 3, verse 10. While the temple was being built, this is what he says. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted, and with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The reason they sang this when the temple was being built was because David had prescribed this as a song of praise. And friends, there are many interesting things about Psalm 118. Besides the messianic references, which we'll get to in a minute, there's just some really interesting things. Like, for example, geographically, Psalm 118 is the center of the Bible. There are 594 chapters before it and 598 chapters after it. 
conveniently located between the shortest psalm, Psalm 117, and the longest psalm, Psalm 119, which has 176 verses. Fortunately for you and for Trinity kids, that is not the psalm that we'll be hearing about today. It would take a while to get through 176 verses. Uh, Fortunately, we are left with 29 really, really good ones. And when you add 594 and 594, you get 1188, which coincidentally coincides with the very center verse of the Bible, Psalm 118.8. The very center of God's word reads, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. That, friends, is good advice worthy of being the center verse in the canon of Scripture. Friends, we worship an eternal God, and he's a faithful God. And this is the point of the first part of the psalm. God's love is eternal. This psalm is a song of praise. It's called a Hallel. Hallel is where we get the word hallelujah from. And Hallel's date all the way back to Exodus. The song of Moses in Exodus 15 is a Hallel. In Exodus 15, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, Moses led the people in congregational singing of God's goodness, as well, not only for delivering them from the Egyptians, but also for God's supernatural power over the natural world, the parting of the Red Sea. It was miraculous, so they sang about it. This is the kind of joyful occasion that required a song, so Moses wrote one. (coughs) Excuse me, Psalm 113 to 118 is known as the Egyptian Hillel. The Jews would sing these specific psalms at Passover each year in remembrance of God's deliverance from Egypt. And if you choose this psalm as your favorite, you would be in very good company. This was also Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Martin Luther, one of the Protestant reformers known for hammering the 95 Thesis to the wall in Wittenberg, He says about this psalm, This is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart. I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger, from which nor emperors, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. That's what it meant to Martin Luther. Luther was often surrounded by empty enemies and beset on all sides. On this side of the cross, he sees this psalm. It's given him hope for the Redeemer and God's provision in the text that his love endures forever and that he will save him. And he identifies with the psalmist in a lot of ways we can too. Surrounded, beset on all sides. But this first part of this psalm, verse 1, gives us hope and proclaims his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Interesting enough, this is the, the, the closing verse also. Verse 29 says exactly the same thing. You may recall that this is referred to as inclusio. It's a literary device used in the Bible. It's 
It's used by the authors to bracket texts, saying the same thing at the beginning and the end, focusing on what's in the middle. And if we look on in the psalm, we see the verses 2 through 4, we see this repeated three more times. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist covers everybody here, the Israelites, the priests, and those who fear the Lord, those who believe in the Lord. This song is for them. This song is for you. And I mentioned a minute ago, this song is sang during different pilgrimage feasts. It was sung every year at Passover. So pilgrimage feasts were feasts where the people of Israel would travel to the temple at different times throughout the year. Um, Passover being one of them and Succoth being another. And what they would do is 113 and 118 were a set. So they would start out, they would sing through them, and ultimately it would culminate with them ending up at the temple while they sang this very song. It was sung along the way during the climax, climax which you can see when we get there. They would arrive at the temple, they would enter through the gate, they'd stroll into the temple and worship God, singing together, communally, in thanksgiving. We see this in other places too. In Matthew 26, 30, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. This is right after the Last Supper, which would have been the Passover Seder. After drinking the fourth cup, the cup of praise, they sing the Hallel, then make their way to the temple. And friends, God's eternal love, his steadfast love, isn't a resting love. It's an active love. God, because of his love, responds to the psalmist's request for salvation, just like he does our requests. He demonstrates his love for us. In Romans 5, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Excuse me. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Continues on in verse 10 to say, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son through nothing that we have done, <clears throat> much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is the image of God's love that we see on this side of the cross, God actively sending Jesus to our rescue. But from the other side of the cross, the psalmist sees salvation in temporal circumstances. God's love rescues him from peril and persecution from enemies, from nations that surround him. And even then, it's unfathomable which is our point, our second point, God's love, God's help is unfathomable. And then we see this where the first four verses talk about God's love. The next 13 talk about him being in thanksgiving, but also all the adversity that he's facing in his life. Here we see the psalmist crying out to the Lord and the Lord answering him because God is a God of action. This is a biography of thankfulness about God's assistance, his response to the psalmist's need. In the communal procession to the temple, 
there would be a lone voice representing the nation of Israel who would thank the Lord for his faithfulness in responding to the psalmist's anguish. Nations surrounding me, surrounding me on every side, pushing me to the point of falling, but the Lord helped me. There's a unifying element here in deliverance and salvation coming from the Lord, and the psalmist trusts this because God's love is eternal. His steadfast love endures forever. It's full of good advice. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is a narrative of his pain and experience. Yet the psalmist has hope. Where does he go for hope? Where does he go for help? He takes refuge in the Lord. And this is a good question for us today. Where do we seek the Lord in the midst of our own adversity, in the midst of our trials, when the nations surround us, where do we go for help? And I, I confess, I am constantly and perpetually wired to look for help in myself first. Constantly trying to work out my own situation before I ask for help from the Lord. Which is the opposite of what scripture commands us to do. And promises that we'll get that help. We can learn a lot from the psalmist. What can man do? This is good confidence to have. We serve a holy and righteous and all-powerful God. What can man do? The psalmist and the Jews seek the Lord's presence in the temple, and the temple is central to this psalm, just as it is central to their lives. The rebuilding of the temple was crucial to the Jews. They were desperate to regain favor with God after years of captivity, enslavement, and exile, and they've returned and rebuilt the temple, excuse me, to invite the presence of God in. When they sing the Hallel, this is where they go to sing it. They march in on Passover and sing about God's greatness and provision and unfathomable help, knowing that God has preserved them throughout time. You see this throughout time, throughout the canon of scripture. We have evidence that God has preserved these people. In the book of Esther, he's used Esther to save the Jews from annihilation at the hands of Haman. He uses Zerubbabel and a pagan king to send them back in order to rebuild the temple, just like he uses pagans to send back Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. God has preserved his people but Jesus finds that they have not been faithful. In fact, when Jesus returns to the temple, he doesn't find proclamation of God's steadfast love. Instead, he finds money changers and religious leaders making a living from the sacrifice of the poor people. And this is what he says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, about the religious leaders. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move not willing to move them with their finger. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, 
you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What will the king do when he returns? When Jesus returned, he went to the temple and what did he do? He cleansed it. He cleansed it and then he called those in it to repentance. (coughs) Excuse me. Luther's favorite verse in this psalm is verse 17 and 18. And it reads, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. If you know anything about Luther, this shouldn't surprise you that that's his favorite psalm. It's even more interesting that he writes it while he's exiled from Germany. He writes, uh, he writes his commentary on the psalm after being excommunicated by the Pope in 1521. So even while he's waiting to hear word from Germany be about Germany uh, about the, the future of evangelicals there, he waits in, in Kosberg and writes prolifically, including this commentary. He was there for 172 days and wrote 120 letters during that time to his family and friends. And Luther, like the psalmist, knew the cost, the cost of discipleship. For him, it was excommunication. And threat of death, excommunication as a heretic. And why is it his favorite? Luther knows that Christ is his only hope. He knows affliction, he knows suffering, he knows persecution. And so do you. Just like the psalmist and Luther, we are afflicted in every way. Persecuted but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in a way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We can find strength in the unfailing of the Lord and also in the help that God sends in the form of his son. This is the unfathomable help. This is the help that's being sent that the psalmist looks forward to. Try to wrap your mind around it for a second. In 25 days, we're going to celebrate a baby being born of a virgin. And that was the single most pivotal moment in all of history. Paul says this in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above Every other name, it's sizzling a little bit, so we'll just follow that out before it. <laughs> it might fall over. Sorry. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That again is God's unfathomable help. It's unfathomable help offered to the psalmist just like it's offered to us, to all rebellious people. This is the story of a baby in a manger born of a virgin who will go to his death for life for us. And that brings me to my third point. God's son is unconquerable. The psalmist cries out for salvation in verse 19. We see, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. In verse 19, we see the psalmist calling God to open the gate of righteousness, knowing that God is the only one that has the authority to do that. This is the gate of the Lord. We see the gate of the Lord is Yahweh's gate. He must open it in order for the Psalter to be saved. And again, only God has the authority to accomplish this, and authority is what's needed. If you think about that in our own lives, we're familiar with gates, mostly how they exist to keep people out. When I was in the Air Force, I was a member of a team that provided security and nuclear missile silos. And one of the sites, my wife and I lived in a very remote part of Montana, and just by convenience, one of the sites, we didn't choose to live close to a missile silo, just happened that way. But one of the sites was close to us, so my wife decided to bake chocolate chip cookies and bring them to me one time. Now, keep in mind, these are heavily guarded, highly secret <laughs> sites with gates and barbed wire and armed security forces to keep people out. So in order to get to the site, someone actually had to call you and tell you that they were coming, and not like your wife, like generals and people, and they would call you, and they would give you, you would be put on a list, and that's how people knew. And even then, we had these encryption devices where we had to encrypt our code, so people would de-encrypt it so they could tell that you were authorized. So my lovely young bride shows up with a plate of cookies, and... They asked me, do you know that lady? I said, yes, that's my wife, but I don't think she was pre-announced. So they proceeded to run out there with their M16s and put her up against the fence with her arms out, and she didn't have authority to enter. The cookies did. We let them pass unmolested, but she was turned away. And I'm mostly kidding. We've talked about this many times, and those who know us know how deeply I have repented. And <laughs> despite her steadfast love, I continue to try and earn her favor each and every day. But the point is, only those in authority can open gates. When the psalmist cries out to open the gates, he knows that God has the authority to do so. And we know who else has the authority to do it. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, we see that Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So in the course of the Passover pilgrimage, this would have been the time that the Jews passed through the gate 
and they recite the remaining verses in congregational song. We look at verse 21. The psalmist is praising God for answering, for using his authority to open the gates of righteousness. In this case, the gates of the temple. He says, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. And throughout time, we see the Holy Scripture as the chronicle of God's love, man's fall, and Christ coming as our Redeemer and an offer of redemption to all of us. But we also see that not everybody will receive it. And we see this in this next verse, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Jesus quotes this directly in Matthew 21, 42 in response to essentially his calling out of the chief priests and the Pharisees for their wickedness. You may remember that Jesus says these words just after telling the Pharisees the parable of the wicked tenants. In the parable, the benevolent farmer leases the land to tenants who then greedily take the harvest for themselves. You might also recall that the tenants kill the landowner's son after killing his servants in response to the question from Christ, When the Lord comes, what will you do? What will they do to him? And their response is telling, they say to Christ, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Immediately after that, Jesus says this, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Friends, the Lord is quoting Psalm 118 there. The psalm says that Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But Jesus does not give them that kind of peace. He promises to crush those that don't faithfully and righteously harvest the crops that the landowner lends to them. This word translated cornerstone is also translated as capstone. While they mean two different things, they're both equally important. The first stone that's laid in any foundation is the cornerstone. And the last stone that's laid in the building is the capstone. So the same word can mean is often translated both ways. In a biblical context, you can see how interesting this is. The Hebrew word is head, so this is literally the headstone. There's a Jewish legend about the building of the temple, and they actually mined the stone from underneath, but they would routinely call down and ask for these specific stones and they would send up these stones. And one stone that they sent up didn't seem to fit anywhere. And so they put it to the side. But they kept stumbling and falling over it. This stone was literally a stumbling block. So finally, one of the builders just pushed it over down to the Kidron Valley, and the weeds grew up around it. And when they got down to finish, it was time to put the cornerstone in the building. 
It's called the Stone of Honor or the Capstone. They sent word down to the quarry asking for this specific stone. And what do you think the quarry said? They said, well, we already built that and sent that months ago. And here they'd cast it aside, the most important stone to the building. They kicked down a hill and into the valley, and the weed grew up around it. The stone that the builders had stumbled over, the stone that the builders had rejected and kicked down the hill was the capstone. There's so much temple imagery here. And you can picture the Jews finishing up the temple, destroyed over time and rebuilt over time and destroyed and rebuilt. And finally, putting the final stone together, the capstone, only to have it destroyed by Titus in 70 AD, which Jesus tells them is going to happen. And we have the benefit of scripture and we have read that Jesus foretold of the temple being destroyed. And he said this when he kicked the money changers out. He said that they could tear down the temple and it would be rebuilt in three days. John 2 says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple that he's talking about is not a temple that took 46 years to build. The temple that he's talking about is his body that is broken down and destroyed, raised again three days later. And the temple that he's talking about, you are a part of. You are a part of the temple. God no longer resides in a temple made of hands. He resides in you if you are in Christ. Ephesians 2 says it this way, verse 18, for through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you see, God has provided salvation for all people in his Son, Jesus points them to it, but they reject him as people often do. If we keep looking at the text in verse 25, they don't reject him. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Save, I pray, which is the typical way that this is transliterated from the word Hosanna. Now that seems really familiar. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These very words are recorded in all three synoptics. This is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt. After singing the Hallel, he's on his way to the temple. He's being welcomed as a returning king, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Riding on a colt is to fill this prophecy of the coming Messiah. But they are missing the larger picture. Jesus had told them he is coming to die. And what's even more interesting is the day he arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is actually Lamb Selection Day. 
This is not only the day prophesied in Zechariah that the king would return, but for thousands of years, this is the day that the Jews have selected the lamb and brought it into their house unblemished to keep them with them until the Passover where it's slaughtered. This is the 10th of Nisan, the 10th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar. And the requirements are found in Exodus 12, 6. The lamb has to be a year old without blemish or defect. Perfect, just like Jesus. And the 10th of Nisan is also recorded as historical in several other ways in the Bible as well. In Joshua 4, 19, it says that that is the day that they crossed over into the promised land and camped on the east side of uh, on the Jordan. Many think that the 10th of Nisan is the fulfillment of the 70 weeks in Daniel, but we don't have time for that either. But is that really so hard to believe that God would knit this thread of this date throughout the Bible? I mean, is it hard to believe that we see all these other threads knit together from Genesis to Revelation that God puts in front of us that the Holy Spirit reveals to us? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, not only fulfilling the prophecy of the coming king, but arriving on the day that they select the Passover lambs. It's funny that they celebrate him with palm branches as the coming king. Four days later, they'll be calling for his death. He is the suffering servant. He is the stone that the builders reject. And in verse 27, we see a reference to the binding of the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, which also drips with Old Testament imagery. Not only of this altar running red with the sins of Israel and the blood of the sacrifice, but of one man, his son, and a different altar. And that's recorded in Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, sacrifice that Abraham was going to make because God asked him to. And there is one sacrifice that takes center stage in the Old Testament, and this is pretty much it. The story of Abraham's faith in providing his only son, knowing that God can raise the dead. It says in verse 15 to 22, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second, second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and not only withhold your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring of the stars of heaven. And it's the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The author of Hebrews has this to say in chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will, <coughs> will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. We know from the story that Isaac wasn't sacrificed by Abraham because the Lord provided another sacrifice. He provided a ram in a thicket. Isaac was spared because God provided a sacrificial lamb. And this points towards that, friends. You read both accounts, you see a lot of symmetry between these accounts. 
between these stories, between these people. Sarah received this promise of the child through an angel, just like Mary did. Both are their father's only son, called the father's only son. Both are sacrificed or nearly sacrificed by a loving father. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice. Christ carries his own wooden cross. The difference between the two are that Isaac didn't die. He was spared because God provided a sacrifice. He does that for us too. He provided his son. Christ is the capstone and the cornerstone. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. We look at the promise of Christ being the cornerstone. And what do we see? We see that what has happened is this passage looks forward to these promises when the temple will be rebuilt in us. And while the temple was being torn down and they were rejecting the cornerstone, while they were killing Jesus, they were fulfilling God's plan, preparing the way for the Passover lamb, God's only son. And Peter says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our, your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. We end our survey of Psalm 118 with the same way we began it, the same words. Thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. While we're entering this joyous season, season of hope and promise, in Christ we can find hope. Hope for you, hope for your family, hope for your wayward or unbelieving children, hope for the next life. And this song, my, this psalm is about our Savior. And while he makes his triumphal entry, as the new temple into Jerusalem, most importantly, he enters into time, empties himself to become a babe. Born on Christmas Day, dying a man, raising him to pay your sin debt, to give you forgiveness, reconciliation, and righteousness. Friends, that is the hope and live in light of that, this Advent season. Look not only to the manger, but also to the cross, where he made all things new. His steadfast love endures for you because it is cemented in his body and his blood. He came, died, and rose that you might have life and have it abundantly. In the midst of the busyness and the holiday rushing, it is difficult to cling to thankfulness. But fight for this daily and think on these things this holiday season, my friends. Let's pray.